When I was a hitchhiker, I was going across the Sahara and I felt like um, like I was an ant crawling across this enormous landscape. And I thought if I could get up and, and, and fly over it, I could, I could see it in a really new way. So I find that really exciting. And I thought, well, you know, if the Sahara was cool, what about the Gobi? What about the Atacama? What about the Empty Quarter? And I just started doing one after the other and I realized, well, hell, I want to photograph all of them. And it took me 15 years. Welcome to the Viewfinders Photography Podcast. Hey there, my name's Graham Targi. I'm a photographer based in Aberdeen, Scotland. And you know, the tagline for this show is that we delve into the thoughts of some of the best photographers in the world. And today's guest, National Geographic veteran George Steinmetz, definitely fits the bill. I'll introduce George in a minute, but first, well, how are things? I hope you're well. Things are pretty good here. Uh, it's half term. So my daughter's off school for a few days. So we went to an aquarium in Macduff. Uh, we went to the Spectra Light Festival here in Aberdeen. Uh, we had a sleepover. One of our friends came over. Ice skating, all the good family stuff, but not much time for work. So just want to let you know that the podcast will be on a short break for the next two or three weeks so I can catch up on some work and get ahead of some podcasting editing. I'll be back with the second half of the season featuring more brilliant guests including Matt Kennedy, who just photographed the latest Spider-Man movie, and one of my favourite landscape photographers, Julia Redel from Germany. All that and more to come in the second half of the season, back in just a couple of weeks. In the meantime, why don't you check out some previous episodes with amazing photographers like Jim Richardson, Marcel Van Osten, Gregory Heisler, Valda Bailey, Magnus Lindbaum, Tim Clayton, Donna Krauss, and many, many more. Uh, you can connect with me on Instagram at Viewfinders Podcast, where you can see updates about the show, see what I'm getting up to, and you can find out about upcoming live events. Speaking of live events, segue, use the code VF10 to get 10% off tickets for the next Viewfinders live event. That's VF10, capital V, capital F, one zero. What's Viewfinders Live? Viewfinders Live is a series of live online events that I run featuring some of my favorite guests from the show. You can join us on Zoom, where my guests give a behind-the-scenes look at their photography. You can ask anything in the live Q&A, and you might even win something in the exclusive prize draw. Viewfinders Live is a fun night in, where you can join a global audience to learn new photography skills and get up close with some of the best guests from the show. Upcoming speakers include food and advertising photographer Scott Chutinho and ICM seascape photographer Shona Perkins. By supporting the event, you'll also be making it possible for me to keep producing new episodes of the podcast. So go to viewfinderslive.com for all the information to get tickets and to use the code VF10 to save 10%. Okay, on with the show. This week, my guest is George Steinmetz, a documentary photographer based in New Jersey, who's shot more than 40 major photo essays for National Geographic. He's won three prizes from World Press Photo, the Environmental Vision Award from Pictures of the Year, a citation from the Overseas Press Club. He was named National Geographic's Adventurer of the Year in 2008, and he currently has over 1 million followers on Instagram. George is best known for his aerial photography, mainly using a motorized paraglider, which enables him to capture unique images of places inaccessible by traditional aircraft. His restless curiosity for the unknown drove him to hitchhike across Africa as a young man and has been the drive behind his epic body of work, which covers remote landscapes, climate change, and global food supply. 
George's work has huge scope and scale, and our conversation touches on a few of George's long-term projects, how and why he got into aerial photography, and how he was almost shot with an arrow. It's a real privilege to have George on the show, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Here's my conversation with George Steinmetz. George, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to meet with you today. I'm grateful for your time. I set aside time to prepare for these uh, conversations and I found myself so engrossed in your website in the photography and the stories that go along with them. And I just, I, I just took way more time uh, than I thought it would. And I, I was, I sort of felt like, well, I'm, I'm should be like writing down my questions, but I'm just reading these stories from your photography and um, so many strands. I'd love to pick up with you today. Um, so let's dive right in. You were born in California. Did you grow up there? Yeah, I was born and raised actually in, in it's kind of embarrassing, but in Beverly Hills, California. Oh, wow. That's fancy. It, it, it wasn't as, it wasn't as fancy then as it is now, um, but it was, um, it was, yeah, it was, it, it, you know, you don't have any control over where you grow up. You just kind of, you're there. Yeah. And, and um, but it was kind of when I was a kid, like I was still with the Boy Scouts and I rode my bike to school and there was a pet shop and whatnot, but it just, it, it's it, it, economically it just uh, kept going and going. And I, I left when I went to college. Okay. And so what kind of work were your parents in? Well, my parents were divorced. My, um, my, my dad was in the lumber industry and my mom, she my parents were divorced so she was a single mother with four kids and um and i don't know um she ended up when the time i graduated from high school she was working uh for stanford university which is where i went to college okay great okay uh, and so what did you study in college i studied geophysics and i um i never really i didn't really use it very much um i was in my third year of college and I was kind of panicked about having to actually go out and make a living doing something I wasn't so excited about. And so I went on a, decided to go on a big travel. Um, and I wanted to go, you know, I had a life had been pretty easy for me growing up in Beverly Hills. And, um, and so I wanted to see a very different part of the world, get kind of as far away from, you know, that life of, you know, privilege as I could. And so uh, I went on a long hitchhiking trip to Africa and I didn't have much money. Um, I mean, uh, my parents refused to let me go and I had to go with my own savings that I had from summer jobs. And I spent uh, a year hitchhiking around Africa uh, with, I think I lived on a, for a year on $5,000. Right. And, uh, it was it was a real, it was kind of graduate school for me, like kind of growing up. I, obviously I wanted to pick up on your journey there. And I can imagine for a young guy from, the states or any any western country i guess going on that kind of journey it must have been i mean life-changing obviously is sort of a the cliche word to go to but tell me about that experience how life-changing was that and and how did that sort of unfold for you when you got there you know i i went there i think originally kind of to uh in a way as much to get away from my upbringing as it was to go and understand africa and um, and then when I got there, uh, I didn't, I didn't really know much about the African continent. I didn't, um, and I, I, when I started traveling, I had to learn French and then Swahili mm -hmm. to get around. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I realized that, that there was 
so much to learn there that I didn't know or really understand any background in. And I, so I became more from being something, a place I wanted to use to get away from Beverly Hills or California to uh, a place I wanted, I found fascinating and wanted to explore and understand more deeply. And uh, I originally started, I grew up with looking at like National Geographic as a kid. And uh, I wanted to, I thought it'd be cool to have a camera so I could take the kind of pictures that you saw in National Geographic. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, with film in, in 1979, and I'm 64 now, so it was a long time ago. And um, so I couldn't see what I was, I, was I like the process of taking pictures. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I couldn't see the results. So I had, I took a lot of bad pictures, mm -hmm. um, but I didn't know there were bad pictures till much later. Uh, <laughs> but I, I love the process. I loved having a camera. It, it gave me an excuse to go and uh, explore things. Mm -hmm. And I like that process. Mm -hmm. So where did you start on that journey? Where did you land in Africa? Well, it's, I, I, I flew on Laker Airways from, uh, from LA to, to Heathrow. Mm -hmm. or Gatwick and then I just started um hitchhiking and I went down oh, wow. okay. through Italy and I took the ferry from um from Sicily to to Tunis mm -hmm. and then I started working my way across the Sahara through Algeria to Niger through I got into Chad during the civil war which was kind of crazy mm -hmm. and um and then through what was then called Zaire now it's called Congo mm -hmm. and got across there to Rwanda and Tanzania Kenya and back up through Sudan to Egypt and I didn't, I didn't have much money, so I was just had to hitchhike. And that was one of the rules. I learned like kind of three rules of hitchhiking is you, you don't pay for a ride and you, you know, you, you drink any water that comes out of a pipe. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then you just, you know, you, you sleep when it gets dark and, and be friendly to people. Mm -hmm. And that was, it worked out well for you. It was safe and everything like that. Well, you have some, you know, you have some educational experience <laughs> along the way and you learn how to get along with everybody from, you know, uh, you know, nuns to, to arm smugglers, you have to get along with everybody. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so it's, it was it was quite a it was kind of a finishing school for me. And um, I'd say I in college, I had taken some classes in, in anthropology, too. And, and I found it really interesting trying to understand the ways of traditional peoples there, um, how they made a living from the land. Mm -hmm. And I tried to document that with my camera. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I read on your website somewhere that um one of the quotes that i've taken out is you have a restless curiosity for the unknown was, was that something that you had at that young stage or i mean that was something that helped you to drive that travel to to be curious to ask questions to find out about the new cultures and the new places and the new uh, people that you were meeting yeah, I think it was, I don't know, it was something I have in a, I had in a really strong way. It just, I think, I don't know if I was born with that, just it's how I am. And I remember like, um, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at maps and I had these wonderful Michelin maps of Africa and I'd always be, you know, they'd had like names of different like tribal groups and they'd show the, where the roads are washed out in the wet season and national parks and all these, you know, strange places I knew nothing about. And I was really curious to go and see what they were like and, and um, I started asking, try to find the most traditional peoples I could uh, try to understand their culture. Like I had, a, I spent some time with um, pygmies mm -hmm. in the in the Turi forest, and it was really fascinating seeing how how they made a living uh, with you know basically with their wits and their feet and their hands. It, mm -hmm. it was, it's fascinating. There's a, a photo of you on your website. You're a young man, and there's uh, I don't know if this is the people that you're talking about. I think it's in Congo, 
um, and you've you've given this guy a, a smoke, I think, as a picture of you and the, sure. the sort of tribal guy. It's really, it's just a really neat picture. So, okay, so after that trip, um, you didn't want to get the real job, so to speak, and you had got these this curiosity maybe about photography. How did you sort of become a photographer, photographer rather after that? Well, you know, I I was I was a bit naive. I thought, you know, I could go and do that and I could I could like, you know, take my pictures of National Geographic and they give me a job. And I mm-hmm. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't really know what I didn't know. Um and um eventually I did actually get a a, a meeting at, at the Geographic and I got some advice from somebody there and but I, I wasn't ready. And um I went back to I went back to college, I graduated and then went back to Africa again. And I used my portfolio from my year travel to get some kind of little starter jobs. And um, anyway, I spent like altogether spent two and a half years hitchhiking around Africa. And when I came back, nobody, even in the States, would really give me any work because the work I had done was not really very relatable. Mm-hmm. And I I needed to um, be more technically proficient. I didn't I didn't know how to um, to work get jobs in in the U.S., especially back then with um, the days of film. Um, I had to know how to use artificial light, which I didn't really know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I I came back and I moved in with some friends from college and I was really running out of money. And I started, um, I got a job as a photo assistant for a studio photographer. And he, I learned started learning how to use big strobes and, um, and then learn location lighting. And once I could do that, then I could start to get some work. Mm-hmm. Um, now, with, now with digital, you know, a lot of people just use available light and, and, and fix it up with Photoshop. But then with film, like using Kodachrome 64 indoors, you would look like it was terrible. It was unusable unless you use artificial light and you had to be really good at that. So it didn't look artificial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so working in a studio kind of thing, that's that's really different than the sort of photojournalism that you're obviously known for. So how did you segue there? Well, it was hard, but I didn't, you know, I, you, you learn something from everything. And, and a lot of, I worked as a, an assistant to a number of studio photographers in, in San Francisco. And a lot of what you learn, you learn technical things. You also learn what you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I realized I didn't want to be a still life guy. I didn't really want to do advertising. It really wasn't suited for that kind of stuff. Um, but you, I, I learned things. And actually some of the skills I learned that actually helped me out quite a bit later in life. Um, I remember like I was working for the studio photographer and he had to photograph, um, he was a tabletop photographer and he had to photograph like a dinnerware set and, and he had to create this elaborate tent so that you, you realize you, you, when you're photographing silverware, you don't really photograph the stuff you're photographing, it's reflect what, what, what the reflections off of it. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, uh, some years later I was working for the geographic and I had a, a story to photograph, um, a robot and the robot was all chrome and I realized, oh. This is like silverware. I got to, yeah. I got to create. I started creating this, built a huge tent that was like the size of a house around mm-hmm. it with panels because I was trying to light the reflections off the robot. And it's like mm-hmm. so you learn stuff from that. And I, re- I learned like you know when you, when you want to photograph something, I, I personally prefer to be like eye to eye with it. So you know, and you want lights that are the same size as your subject. So if you're photographing a car, you want like a really huge light. If you're photographing a mouse, you want a mouse size light. Mm-hmm. And, and you, 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 you know, you, you learn like kind of basic stuff. And um, so I was really, um, I learned my chops. It didn't take me very long. Like after a year or two of being a photo assistant, I was ready to, or I thought I was ready to go out on my own. But what I really loved, as you point out, Graham, I love being out in 
you know, in kind of frontier areas. And mm -hmm. uh, I like being in remote areas and trying to uh, tell the, the story of those places. Mm -hmm. So to bring it back to geographic then, was was that like a something that was bugging you that you wanted to shoot for them? I know like in the beginning, there was maybe a naivety about that saying, you know, I'll, I'll shoot for National Geographic, but at some point did it become like an ambition? Well, it wasn't the, you know, the ego of like, oh, I want to be a net geo photographer. It was more like mm -hmm. I wanted to do that kind of work. I, I didn't care really who was paying for it. I just wanted to go out and, and uh, kind of explore the world and document it. And I love seeing back then there was, you know, there was great stuff in, in Life magazine and a lot of places. And I wanted to go out and do uh, photojournalism and kind of explore the world. And um, I started, my first jobs as a photographer were doing portraits and I would, um, I got, you know, I was working for local magazines and I got a job to photograph like the local chef or the, the, um, the, the timpanist in the San Francisco symphony. And you had to go and set up lights. I photographed a lot of people in Silicon Valley, like Steve jobs and Bill Gates. And, mm -hmm. um, I did that kind of stuff, like set up portraits, but I really preferred being out and doing kind of reportage. I want to get into the aerial photography. So I, I was read that it was your African journey that where you started to think about aerial photography. So when was the first time that you managed to get up in the air to do that? Can you talk about that experience? Yeah, you know, I, um, I came back from Africa and I was, um, well, when I was traveling Africa, I was traveling a lot of trucks and, and they put you, you're not paying for a ride. They put you on top of the truck. Okay. And usually it was an open cabin truck with like a pile with like, you know, sacks of stuff and usually people on top with your goats and everything. Mm -hmm. And you have to duck the trees as you're going down like jungle roads. Yeah. And, and but I have to say, wouldn't it be really cool if I get up higher and I could like fly like a bird? I didn't want to fly like I want to fly like a bird. And um, but that stuck with me because you you when you're, you get above, you can, you just you can understand the, the geography a little bit better differently. And um, so I, I was when I came back to San Francisco, I was trying to build up my portfolio and I decided I wanted to do um, a story on a sheep ranching in Nevada. And I went out and I found a guy at the local airport who would take me up for the, for if I get paid for the fuel for a Cessna. Okay. And it was just wonderful. Like I still have that photo. It took it out the window of a Cessna, but looking down on, on agriculture in, in Nevada and just, you get up and it's like, Whoa, it's like, you're looking, you're like flung over the map. And it was really exciting. Mm -hmm. And um, most magazines don't really use that kind of photography, but I found it really captivating. And when I started working for the geographic and magazines that use it, that was usually my favorite part of the assignment was the flying. Mm -hmm. And so was your first aerial geographic story, was that African air? Was that right? No, I took, you know, there's an old saying that you, as a journalist, you, you, you write about what you know, or you photograph what you know. And um, my first story for the geographic was about oil exploration, how oil is found. And basically, um, it was about what I studied in college. I studied geophysics. And as I got when I was um, a student, I got some summer jobs working for oil companies. I worked for um, Texaco's Alaska division. And I worked for um, a seismic exploration crew in Mexico. Um, and I, I, I would spend time talking to these guys. Tell, they'd tell me these, these tall tales about Oh, when I was in Kuwait, the, the rig blew up and they were telling all these stories about it. Yeah. And so I, I heard all these stories. And I, so I pitched the story of the geographic about how oil is found. Mm -hmm. And um, this is when oil was really uh, expensive. And um, 
because people don't really know. They think it just like squirts out of the ground mm -hmm. or they thought at the time. And so uh, that's what my story was for them. And, and I started going around the world and I, I actually had a great time. I got to New, went to New Guinea and Sumatra where they were doing a lot of helicopter uh, operations for oil. Mm -hmm. And and that was really fun to go out, especially when somebody else is paying for the chopper time. Mm -hmm. um, it was really fun. Okay, did that project take you to Aberdeen as well? Yeah, I, I, I um, was working on oil. I wanted to, uh, I heard all these stories about, you know, crazy oil situations and I wanted to photograph uh, offshore oil. Mm -hmm. And I, went out, I wanted to go out and uh, I found these seismic boats that were going out and they went out. I, got a, I wanted to go out in a really bad weather. I thought they'd be really dramatic because usually they just kind of drive around the ocean back and forth like a big lawnmower and it's kind of boring. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, where would be the most interesting area? Oh, the North Sea, they got really nasty weather. So I went up there in February. <laughs> and um, and sure enough, we got stuck in a Force 10 storm. It was crazy. Right. So I, I wanted to find like the nastiest weather fine. Yeah, well, yeah, you're probably in the right place. Everybody here anyway in Aberdeen works in the oil industry. I mean, most people. Um, everybody is a geophysicist or an engineer or something. And uh, and it's, it's an amazing industry. I'm, me being on the outside of it, I, I don't really know much about it. But um, it was, it's interesting that you've got that oil industry link because in Aberdeen, it's really the, it's like the only game in town, you know? So, um, well, you know, Graham, like the oil industry, it's, um, it, the, the oil guys are kind of secretive. Like you talk to the exploration guys and they really don't, they, they really keep their mouth shut because they don't want you to, like, they find some really big find and they want everybody to know where it is because there's like, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in line. So it was really helpful for me when I started working that story, I could talk oil and I can make these guys feel comfortable. Right. Um, and and I, I knew, I knew what they didn't want me to know. I didn't, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't know. So I said, look, I don't want to see your maps. You know, I don't need that. I just want to see, you know, your doodle buggies. And they, mm -hmm. Oh, cool. You can see the doodle buggies. And that was, that was the picture that what they, what was secret for them wasn't really visually interesting. And so I could use that to make them comfortable. Okay, I wanted to talk about your project, um, Desert Air, um, because it, you describe that on your website as an obsessive project. And um, can you talk about that one? I was wondering if it segued off of any other project that you'd done before, um, how yeah. one thing had led to another, and maybe just tell us a little bit about that project, uh, Desert Air. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, when I was a hitchhiker, I was um, going across the Sahara, and I realized, I felt like, um, like I was an ant crawling across this enormous landscape, and I thought if I, I thought if I could get up and, and and fly over it, I could, I could see it in a really new way. I could kind of understand the geography, and um, so after I had done a couple stories for the Geographic, and I thought they would kind of trust me to propose my own thing, a big project, I I pitched a story on the Sahara. Um, and uh, I had been down there on another project, and I had um, I'd met a pilot who said he could take me around in a uh, an ultralight. He had a kind of motorized hang glider, and, and um, so I, I talked the chief graphic into doing that. We, we could the idea was we could put the the little hang glider in the in the back of a pickup truck, and we could just drive around in this hair when we wanted to fly. We just take it off the pickup and take off from the sand. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and the guy. I, I got the money from the magazine and the guy flaked out on me. He had another job that he couldn't help me. And so I had to learn how to fly myself because um, right. in, in Niger, there weren't, there was really nobody else to hire. 
Mm-hmm. And Chad, there were, there were there were no helicopters except for the French military. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had I had to like you know do your own. And so I I learned how to fly. I, I got into motorized paragliding for that project. I, I started taking cl- taking classes and training, and and I bought my own gear. And I went to the Sahara and I started, um, I, I did this, uh, a story in the Central Sahara and I did two big trips with the glider. And it, um, the motorized paraglider, it's the, the really, the, the very unusual aircraft. It's the lightest, slowest aircraft in the motorized aircraft in the world. You, mm-hmm. you, there's no fuselage or no wheels. It's it basically, it's a strap on motor, like a big leaf blower. Mm-hmm. And the wing is a paraglider. So you run to take off and land. And it opened up new ways of seeing for me in in desert environments because you could there was unobstructed view 180 degrees horizontal and vertical so uh it was like a flying lawn chair and and so i started flying that and it, it was just really excited about what i was seeing how i was able to see remote places and i, I decided i wanted to go to more deserts and i did that for 15 years mm-hmm. so the sahara sort of project it grew out to be just deserts all over the place yeah, it's kind of like I felt like I felt kind of like I had um like somebody had me handed me a football and I had a big opening and I just wanted to keep on running. You know, I was mm-hmm. I was seeing stuff that um like nobody had really seen. I could fly in places nobody had ever flown before, mm-hmm. and, and seeing you know, and it wasn't like you know bragging rights. It was like I was seeing stuff that was really cool that you couldn't get access to any other way. Mm-hmm. And um, so I find that really exciting. And I thought, well, you know, if the Sahara was cool, what about the Gobi? What about the Atacama? What about the empty quarter? And I just started doing one after the other. And I realized, well, hell, I want to photograph all of them. Mm-hmm. And it took me 15 years. Uh, it's, it's quite interesting. I'm sure people must say this to you, but you would you would think desert, there's nothing there. But that's not what you found. I read uh, somewhere that you discovered uh, the highly developed strategies that allow man, vegetation and wildlife to endure on the outer limits of survival. Can you unpack that a little bit and talk about what you really found in the desert from that angle? Well, I mean, when you're flying it's, um, on remote areas like that, the, the, I, was in, I was interested in, in hyper-arid environments, environments where there's virtually no vegetation. And it, it looks like the earth with its living skin peeled away. Mm-hmm. And you, you do find wildlife out there, but it's like, I said, it's, it, like you pointed, it's, it's at the very edge of what's possible. And um, the, the oases are kind of like um, they're kind of like the inversion. Of, they're kind of like islands out in the Pacific. It's just these little oases, and you find um, it's really interesting how people and, and animals have adapted to the environment. And it's it's like uh, these desert environments. It's like the earth that's living skin stripped away, and, and everything is very raw and apparent. And and from the air, there's nowhere to hide. You can see everything. It's just really beautiful. And um, you, you see it. I mean. You, you see that played out in all these different cultures. I, I found for me, deserts, it was like um, a disparate family that was, you know, like separated people separated at birth. And you would find similar like shapes and forms in different deserts, but they would all be unified uh, by aridity. And you find salt and um, but you find deserts in everywhere from the Sahara to Antarctica to the Andes and, and Himalaya. Um, but would you get start looking at them and you find, oh, they're doing the same, you know, similar kinds of water conservation, the same forms of bark hand dunes, the same wind erosion, the same issues. That's really interesting how things are sort of connected in that way, isn't it? Things that would seem disparate like that. When you um, got into the uh, using the paraglider then, 
what was the sort of learning curve for that? Because the way you've described it, it sounded like you were really dropped in the deep end there and you just had to kind of get on with it. Um, I can imagine nowadays you probably need to do some training and get some kind of license. I don't know, but there you were. You were just had to get on the thing and fly up. Um, did it come to you quite easily? And how do you manage the camera when you're up there? I, I would have dropped it, obviously. How were the, just the sort of logistics of that process for you? Well, in the in the U.S., where I was doing my training, there was um, it, it's it's kind of unregulated. There's no license or um, uh, required or available. It, the FAA's attitude is: you want to go kill yourself, just don't take anybody with you. So you okay. you're not allowed to fly over populated areas, okay. and um, there you have to be careful. And so uh, you know, you start asking around, and you I, I talked to some people before I got into. I talked to people about it who who had done it, and. Um, they told me that it was it was reasonable if you only flew really early in the morning and really late in the day, mm -hmm. because in the middle of the day, you can get big, um, there could be big bubbles of hot air and you get like, you know, like dust devils and, and turbulence, and that can cause the wing to collapse, which can be fatal. But if you fly mm -hmm. really early and really late in the day and you take certain precautions, it's safe. It's kind of like rock climbing. If you, you know, you clip into solid rock and you check your knots, it's okay. And I only wanted to fly early in the morning and late in the day. So I said, oh, well, that's reasonable for what I want to do. Because um, you know, early in the morning and late in the day, that's only when you have really nice light. Mm -hmm. um, so you just start kind of, and then you you hunt around trying to find like somebody who's a good instructor. And um, I was about, I got into paragliding when I was about 40, which is good because it's, it's not the safest sport, but when you're older, I think you're a little bit more, um, a little more cautious. You know, mm -hmm. it's like you don't give I don't want to give a 17 year old a motorcycle mm -hmm. and, and you get into it when you're 40 and you're going to be a little bit, you know, you're better at risk management. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I just, yeah, I started classes and buying the stuff and I just you, you figure it out, but you have to be careful because there's no there's no manual. Yeah. And I, I was flying in a lot of when I was doing the deserts, Graham, I flew in a lot of really weird areas where nobody ever flown a paraglider before. So there was really nobody to ask. We had to go and and look at stuff and, and think it out really carefully. I always did my flying with another person who was a more proficient pilot than me. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like you go, if you were diving in um, you know, a hazard environment, like say like under ice or shark infested water or something, you'd want to have a pro diver with you mm -hmm. um, who could kind of watch your back and think, help you figure out safety issues. So that's what I did. I took uh, a pro pilot with me every time. Just on the scale or craft of photojournalism. I was wondering, how do you tell a story? What do you look for as an in, you know, photography-wise, to, to start telling a story? Because I wanted to ask you about Feed the Planet, uh, or even the Desert Air project. You know, it's a, if you're just you're going to say, okay, the project is deserts. It's so broad. How, what, what would you look for for a starter point to really get some traction and get into the story? Does that make sense? Well, I mean, basically, you, you want to, I like to see things that nobody else has seen. And, mm -hmm. and you, you want to show people something new. And um, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I have a voracious appetite for pictures. And I've seen a lot of stuff. And he's like, I want to see stuff that, you know, mm -hmm. what haven't you seen? And so um, with the deserts, that's what I really loved about the gliders that let me go and fly in areas that were just gorgeous, but especially from the air, and no one ever seen it like that way before. And that was I used to love being like on an airline and looking at the person next to you opening a magazine 
like when they actually open magazines and, 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 uh, look, and you'd see like, sometimes there'd be like a magazine, like pictures in it. And I wouldn't say anything. I just watch them and you sell, if you got more of their attention than the, than the person, the picture before or after, yeah. and you want to be like, wow, look at that, Martha. That's really cool. And, and, and that to me, that's, you know, that's what the story is. And it's the same thing with deserts as it is now I'm working on food. Um, I, I, I like photographing, um, really large scale, uh, food situations, stuff that most people consider kind of freaky because they haven't seen it before. And so I, I went, you know, like in China, I got into the biggest pig slaughterhouse in the world. And it's like, whoa, you ever seen, you know, I mean, there are like 1200 people on the cutting room floor. It was crazy size. And I like to see stuff, you know, nobody's seen. And so it's the same curiosity and, um, you know, show, show the hidden world. Yeah, it's that curiosity that's still driving you. So, okay, on the Feed the Planet project, it's I found this so interesting. And um, like you say, most people haven't seen these places or, I mean, we know our food comes from somewhere, but we don't necessarily want to see the process that it goes through, I think. And some of the photographs in the project, they, they really confront you with the realities of that, of those processes and they can be quite uncomfortable. Tell us, maybe give us an overview of the project and, and then we'll, we'll get into it from there, a, a little overview of the Feed the Planet project. Well, I got started when the, I've been doing a lot of flying and um, I was kind of finishing up with deserts and uh, an editor at the Geographic asked me if I'd be interested in working on a project about, uh, it was called um, like feeding, it was called like feeding 9 billion, they estimated that by 2050, we'd have 9 billion people on the planet. And how are we going to feed all these people? Um, and I told him, and they, he thought with my aerial chops, I'd be able to visualize that in a different way. And I, I told him, I thought it'd be interesting, but it'll be only interesting if you were to look at the mega farms, like the freaky farms, um, because like a cow under a tree is not very interesting, but you see you know, like a, a mega feedlot or something that that would be, you know, more interesting. Mm -hmm. And so he agreed to that idea. And so also the nice thing about seeing like, you know, lots of something is you, you got an idea of feeding 9 billion, it, it communicates that. And so um, my first, the first place he sent me was out to Kansas to photograph the wheat harvest. And I, I started looking for the biggest wheat farmer in Kansas because I like scale. And I found this guy, he was a really nice guy. And he had a, he had a small plane for flying around his fields and seeing when they're ripe. And I went up on, on his plane, we went over a, a cattle feedlot. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. Look at all those cows. And we went over a cattle feedlot where they had, um, they had dairy cows. So they were like white cows against all the brown poo in the feedlot. So they stood out really well. Mm -hmm. And I went back there the, uh, the next day to try and fly with my paraglider because I wanted to get down lower and slower. And I got thrown in the county jail um, for uh, criminal trespassing. Wow. And uh, I thought it was really weird. I mean, I, when I landed, the sheriff's, you know, was kind of hot and bothered. And I showed him my net geo ID and uh, gave me one of my editor's phone number. And I was very, you know, transparent with this guy. And he, they said they were throwing me in jail because they were concerned about, about agro security. Okay. Agro security. I was worried about my own security. I, I thought I might like my motor quit and I land, get stomped by the cattles and, and, <laughs> And then it, be, and it dawned on me that there are, are elements of our food supply that some of the larger producers don't want us to see. Yeah. 
And, you know, if you're a journalist and you're interviewing somebody and all of a sudden they get all nervous about something, well, you know, that's your question. You hit right. on something interesting. Mm -hmm. And and it's kind of like with the deserts, I wonder if whatever hadn't been seen, it's like, well, these, I realize a lot of parts of our food supply aren't, haven't really been seen. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, you know, as a consumer, we have maybe not a legal right, some kind of, I think we have a, I think a moral right to be able to see uh, or a natural right to see where our food comes from. Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, I started looking a little more uh, intently at that. And that was eight years ago. And mm -hmm. um, so that guy, that farmer, that that rancher in Kansas, he did me a great service by getting me thrown in jail. Yeah. <laughs> and so did you have difficulty getting access to some of these places then or for that reason? Or does National Geographic just open all doors? Uh, no, you know, people have this idea that, you know, you work for National Geographic and all of a sudden it's like everything you're on, you know, everything's great. And mm -hmm. I used to think I used to have the magazine and look at these pictures like, you know, taken out of like the window of a helicopter. They, oh, man, if I was in that helicopter, I could have taken a better picture than that. Well, yeah. the problem was I wasn't in the freaking helicopter. I didn't know <laughs> sure. where I didn't know where to get the helicopter. I couldn't have got the assignment. I didn't know where to put it. And and, and so it, it's um it's all the for the geographic. I mean, basically they'll let me use their name and their letterhead to write to write a letter to get into a place. Um, but I've got to I've got to craft that letter. I got to figure out what's important and, and, and do all the rest of it, which is the main part of the work. Mm -hmm. And so I, I love the geographic, but it's basically it's been kind of a, a grant giving organization for me, but I'm still driving the bus. Mm -hmm. And because uh, when, you know, a project like uh, the kind of projects I do, they just are basically signing the check and giving me a long leash. Mm -hmm. Some. Yeah. So some of the um, photographs and some of the facilities that you you get to on this project and this sort of industrial scale of the agriculture, like I said before, it's it's a little bit shocking sometimes to see it. And you described um, a place you were in earlier as well. What have been the takeaways for you from this project, from seeing that huge scale of agriculture? Has it challenged you in any way? Has it impacted you in any way? I guess is what I'm trying to get to. Well, it it, it, it can be kind of um, you know we we're fed all this um, kind of propaganda about where are you know about food like you know, you buy you know the you buy like the the butter and it shows like you know the the happy cow in the green pasture with a little fence behind mm -hmm. and and, um, and and we just we we have these kind of idealized views and and. A lot of that is actually put forward by the food industry mm -hmm. and it's kind of you know false marketing it's kind of like you know if you buy these pantyhose you look like kim kardashian and that's really not the case mm -hmm. um and so but when i when you go and you see these places sometimes yeah it is kind of uh disheartening i mean like i in the morning i have um there's a this kind of greek yogurt i i get and i've been to their factory in idaho and i the place it looks like i mean it's massive and it's all these machines of stainless steel and I feel sometimes I, like I'm like this little gerbil, like sucking on a silver tube coming out of this big agro-business machine. But yeah. that is, you know, if you want to feed nine or 10 billion people, you want to do that as efficiently as possible. And, and so, um, you know, people think a lot of these animal operations are inhumane, like, you know, these chicken houses where the chickens are all crammed in these little cages. But if you want to feed nine or 10 billion people and you still want to have some wilderness left, you want to really minimize the agricultural footprint and, and you don't you know if if everybody to put it another way if everybody eats organic we're screwed there's not enough land and water because organic food takes a lot more land and water generally okay and and, and so 
um, I, I see that it's complicated that, you know, and if you eat like, you know, conventionally raised poultry, that's actually in some ways better for the environment. I wouldn't want to be that chicken, but it's actually better for the environment mm -hmm. um, because it conserves more resources. Mm -hmm. So it's complicated. So it's complicated. Yeah. Another thing that's kind of tricky for me is I, I, I have to go up to the owner of like, you know, the, the $4 million, $4 million chicken chicken ranch and talk my way into that place. Mm -hmm. And I have to publish picture when I publish pictures, I don't want him to feel like that guy um, ripped me off that guy, mm -hmm. you know, that guy, that guy lied to me and I, I want to be transparent. And I, I want to give a fair shake. I want to explain what they're doing so that people can make up their own mind what they want to do. And so mm -hmm. if I'm doing my job right, the chicken farmer should be happy that he looks right and, and the people who are animal rights activists should be all pissed off and everybody should be able to you know you just want to present the information and let people draw their own conclusion i wanted to bounce from there to something completely different which i, I dug into your website and found um that you'd photographed the tree people of papua new guinea which kind of seems like the opposite of what we've just been talking about, where they're, it's like the definition of off-grid living there, living in the forest. I imagine that was quite a daunting thing to do because I, from what I could gather, they're a culture who actively don't want to make contact with outsiders. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about that project. It seemed really interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I was... Um... Working in New Guinea, and I, I was in Indonesian New Guinea, um, and Indonesian half of the island. And I, you know, there, there people there were a lot of people there were most of the people there weren't uh, contacted by the outside world until uh, after World War II, especially up in the in the highlands. Mm -hmm. And um, you have a lot of people there who are still like living largely without clothes or not what we would consider closed in the West mm -hmm. um, and they don't really have many inputs from the outside. And I heard that there was a, a, a group of people that was still in contact and they were living in trees. And I just, I didn't believe it. I thought it was bullshit. Mm -hmm. and, and, but I asked a lot of people and it, people who actually been there, it seemed like it was, it was real. Mm -hmm. And so I went down there to check it out and, um, and we went into the forest and, like third or fourth they were there these guys came right out of the forest and tried to kill me they they, they had never seen anybody with clothes on mm -hmm. and they had these special arrows just for people and they were pointing them at me right and it was very real yeah and, and um so i realized that it was really a important story and, and not just a story, story i thought it was a important thing to document because it was clear to me looking at the rest of new guinea that you know, sooner or later, these people were going to come into contact with the outside world, whether they wanted to or not. And I mm -hmm. thought it was important to make um, as accurate and sensitive a record of their way of life uh, mm -hmm. as I could before it disappeared. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I look in the United States and you see what's happened to all the Native American groups and stuff. And I, I knew, you know, that, that it was inevitable they would be contacted. And so I, 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 um, I started asking around and I, I wanted to find somebody who could act as an intermediary with them. Um, and I found a missionary, I heard about a missionary who uh, was the only outsider to have spoken the language. And he went there to, to basically translate the Bible into their language. Um, he went through, there's a missionary linguistic group um, that he was working with. And so I went and I saw him and he, I convinced him to come back to New Guinea with me. 
and, and, and do a more serious expedition so we could go really deep and find people and, and document people who had never been contacted. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we did. And, um, and it, was, it, was a, it was a really difficult uh, and fascinating experience. Mm-hmm. Were you able, do you feel like you were able to make an accurate sort of documentation of their way of life without intruding and that kind of thing? Yes and no. Um, I mean, there's um, there's a, a theory. It's a theory in particle physics. It's called Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that you don't really um, that you can't really document a thing. You can just document your effect upon it. It's kind of paraphrasing, but um, it's kind of like with particle physics. You don't. You try to look at like these, you know, little molecular bits. You you bombard them with with things, and you see what happens. Like you throw a, you know you throw a bomb in there and see what runs out. <laughs> and, and and basically that's kind of what we're doing with these people i mean you you, you, you the fact that you're there means you're no longer they're no longer uncontacted but you, yeah. you try to um go in and be as sensitive as you can and, and try to say like well you know what are you guys doing tomorrow and they say what do you mean what are we doing you're here i mean like it's kind of like you're a, you're a martian in their house all they want to do is look at you because you're the weirdest thing they've ever seen <laughs> Okay. I said, okay, but if we weren't here, like what we do, I don't know, we just probably, I don't know, we'd just be sitting around smoking. Like, well, okay, then, you know, do you guys, you know, what do you guys do for, for food? He said, well, we, we eat fish. Okay, can you show me how you fish? Said, oh, sure. And they go out and then they go out fishing and they kind of, freak, you know, they, they, it's such a routine for them that they do it their normal way. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they say, okay, well, you guys are really good at tree climbing. Do you get any food from the trees? Oh, yeah, we get honey from the trees. Oh, well, are there any beehives around? Sure, there's a beehive over here. And so I would, I, I had a guy with me who was, um, I brought a guy with me who was an expert in trees because I realized to photograph the tree people, I would have to be up on their level. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted, I needed to be able to photograph them up in the trees. And so I brought a guy with me who was a expert in, in, in doing a rope work in trees so I could suspend myself up like up, you know, hundred feet off the deck in the trees. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would set up, I set up a, a rig so I could be up next to the beehive and then photograph them coming up to to where I was and mm-hmm. document their way of life. That's been a completely fascinating experience. I'm going to move on to talk about other things in a second, but I would just wonder, you've traveled so much, you've seen so much, many things that other people would never see with their own eyes. What What's your sort of takeaway from that? What have you learned along the way, if you could encapsulate that in a, in a short paragraph? Well, I mean, Grant, the whole world is fascinating. It's just, it's kind of how you, you look at it and, and, and um, my advice to photographers is to go and photograph what they know and, 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 and show, show that in a way that they, with their unique perspective that they can to others. I mean, I remember once I had a, an assignment to uh, photograph my hometown of Beverly Hills. And I decided that it'd be interesting to photograph a maid's perspective on Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you were thinking of like, you know, all the rich people. It's like, no, but what's it like being a maid in Beverly Hills? So I, it was really hard, but I actually found an old friend who, would let me photograph their maid's life and follow the maid around. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because I just realized that the maid was like the, the best friend for the kids. The mom was off on her beauty appointments and the dad was off making shitloads of money. Mm-hmm. And the maid, the kids were helping the maid vacuum their bedroom and they're having a great time. They're playing vacuum and they're mm-hmm. having a great time. And that was really the untold story of Beverly Hills. So you photograph what you know. Mm-hmm. Is, um, that's the advice I have for people. Yeah, that's a great way. And, and are you, do you become confident in finding your own angle like that you know um and looking for your own narrative to or your own spin to put on a, a story like that 
Yeah, you just you basically have to follow your gut and, and you know what's interesting and and to me it's always like you know what's the picture um I haven't seen and um I mean now I'm with the, I do a lot of flying now a lot of what I do is is looking at like Google Earth trying to find interesting situations that I can go and you know translate with my drone a particular time of year and get a picture of something that no one's seen so mm -hmm. but I, it's constantly looking for the the new and the 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 interesting Let's take a minute to talk about gear then camera gear so okay i usually ask what's your go-to camera and lens combination i understand you'll be using different things for different things but what is a what's comfortable for you what is a good thing to have in your hand um well my work has evolved i mean I, with i used to use all fixed focal length lenses when i was using film and i had the fastest focal length lens in every basically every lens that nikon made from like 15 up to 300. Mm -hmm. And when I started doing a lot of uh, flying, um, I switched to zooms because it was difficult to change lenses while I was flying. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have any place to put anything. And so I, and I, I and now as I shifted to digital, um, I shifted to digital, you know, like 2004, I use continue to use zooms. My main camera now is the Canon R series, mm -hmm. which is an incredible camera, the mirrorless camera, mm -hmm. um, the R5. And uh, the the lenses are we're in a fantasy time for 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 photography and what you can do now is stuff I, I couldn't have dreamed of uh, you know thirty years forty years ago it's just it's incredible even the stuff I can do with my R series now I can't, I couldn't have imagined I could do even like two years ago the stuff just keeps getting better and better mm -hmm. um, but I find most of what I need to do I can do with like a twenty four to seventy it's like a twenty four to hundred zoom like those that's kind of the my go to lens that okay. wide angle lens. I'm using Nikon I've SLR still, but I've I've used a friend's uh, Canon R something, and um, I found it the autofocus was incredible. Are those are the kind of advancements that you're talking about, or what's it really doing for you? No, I mean autofocus has gotten really good. I mean, um, but what's more impressive to me is that you can when you're looking through the mirrorless systems, you you know you're seeing your uh, you're seeing your exposure uh, before you take okay. the picture. Mm -hmm. um you're seeing you can you can shoot in the dark because you're looking at the sensor you're not looking through the prism and, and so you know you can be photographing virtually in like complete darkness and you can see what's going on it's like night vision um i found the stabilization is incredible i was in india last month in um in, in a sikh temple where they were feeding like a, a thousand people on the floor and it was really this chaotic scene and i wanted to uh to make it visually the picture work i wanted to have a, a slow a slow shutter speed to have like some people still and some blurred and i found i could with the handheld system i could hand hold it at like i had to look at the specs but i could hand hold it at like you know like an eighth of a second right. and i could get some people sharp and then the, the guy the servers were all blurred because mm -hmm. it was it was a situation where i couldn't set up a tripod it was too chaotic so i could hand hold it like you know a quarter of a second mm -hmm. and and um it was incredible. I found another situation over there where it was, I was shooting in the dark. It was, um, they were drying fish by basically by candlelight. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, there was no plate, there was no way to use a tripod. I was setting up in this rickety thing and I could handhold a picture and have a quarter of a second, an ISO 3000. Mm -hmm. And it was sharp and it was, it looks good, big. It was like, it's just incredible yeah, um, okay. what you can do. The drones now, I can do like, you know, a drone photo at a half second and it's sharp. I mean, to be able to think about flying in a helicopter or a paraglider and shoot with a half a second, it's like, no. it's crazy. Yeah. 
And yeah, I was about to ask uh, the, about the drones that you're using. Um, can you go into some uh, detail about that? Well, I use DJI drones. DJI is kind of, I mean, they're, they they dominate the marketplace for drones. And um, I keep getting every you know year or two, they go on something new, and I try and get the new one as soon as I can because it's always better than the last one. And okay. um, my, my my preferred platform is there. It's a system called the Inspire 2. Um, and it's kind of expensive uh, it's big, but it's got the, the biggest uh, sensor I can find on a reasonably portable drone. And I also use the little ones like the Mavics are really great with their, um, the Hesplet lenses. They're really, they're not, their resolution is not quite as good, but they fly extremely well and, and you can use them indoors and you can use them close to people because they're not, it, it's kind of like the, the, the Inspire 2, is, it, it's big. It's kind of intimidating, but the Mavic is relatively small, so you can photograph within like you know ten feet of people, and it's okay. They don't really mind so much. Okay, are you finding it easier to use the drones than obviously to get up in the paraglider? Obviously, it's easier, but um, what, is it is it a better experience for you photographically? Are you getting a better outcome? I think that's what I'm getting. At. Well, it, it's very different. I mean, there's um, I definitely miss the experience of being up there and being able not just kind of not out of comes kind of. Kind of I'm not like some macho adventure dude. Basically, I want to say that earlier on too. Like I'm, I only fly for pictures. I don't go out and fly to for to get my rocks off. You know, okay. uh, I'm, uh, I'm kind of like a surfer with a camera and no no camera, no surfing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and um, but now with the, the drone, I mean it's um, I find well when you're up in the air, you can, it's one of those you can really explore. Like with the paraglider, I could fly for two hours and I can fly at thirty miles an hour, so I can really explore remote areas with the drone you can't it's it's like a dog on a long leash and uh, maybe you can go a couple miles sometimes but all you get to see is what's in this little screen in front of you it's kind of like you're you're driving around with like you know blinders on or, or a really bad scuba mask you know it's all you can see is what's in front of you there can be something really cool around you and you have no idea what's going on and i don't know how many times i went out flying with the paraglider and i went up with one idea and that idea ends up not being any good and you find something really cool that you didn't expect because you got like peripheral vision you go oh look there's a gazelle you know came out of there oh let's go over the fall the gazelle yeah and with the drone you just have no situational awareness but the drone you can also you can wait for things you can be stable you can you can go oh i want to be a little left a little right you go up with the conventional aircraft even a helicopter they're, they're always moving i mean helicopter pilots do not like to hover they like to keep moving mm -hmm. and so uh, with the drone you're you know i can fly i can take aerial photos from like you know 20 feet 50 feet and it's okay and i can take off and you know i've taken off from the boat in the middle of the ocean from a canoe and, and uh so it just opens up all kinds of new places and mm -hmm. when i got into paragliding i was flying out in the middle of the freaking sahara and there was nobody around for like you know 100 miles but now like with the drones i can take off in you know the middle of a Sikh temple i can just mm -hmm. set it up Okay, you launch from the launch from their hand. I, I don't like to do that, but you get it up, it goes. So it's really it's fantasy time for cameras. Um, if you've got a minute, George, this is a round called double exposure. Okay, and I'm going to ask you about one of your photos that has particularly caught my eye, and then I'll throw it back to you to tell me about a particular story experience that you've had in your photography journey. And um, I looked out a few of your pictures. One that I there's. There's this one in Lanzarote, which just looks really interesting to me. And then there's the shark head one. But I, I think which I think I prefer the Lanzarote picture, but I need to ask you about the shark heads because it's such a weird and eerie picture. 
Um, can you maybe describe that and tell us about that image? Oh, um, well, I, I, I've been as part of my project on food. I wanted to look at, at, at global fisheries and uh, some fisheries experts advised me to go to um, to Mauritania in West Africa. It's a desert nation with um, a very productive uh, fishery. And I went to a port uh, in the very far north called Nwadibu. Um, and it's with the only deep water port in the country. And a lot of the boats come in there. And I was, some of the experts I talked to advised me to go and check out the place where they, like the local, not the big boats, but local guys come in and they have this kind of, um, place where they put fish up to dry all the kind of the bycatch and the nasty stuff comes out of the bottom of the boat. Mm -hmm. And they, one area they had where they were chopping up sharks and they had all these baby shark heads and they put them up to dry. Apparently they, it's a, it's a, it's a popular soup in Nigeria, uh, shark head soup. Mm -hmm. And, and so they took, these are baby sharks. I mean, the shark heads were kind of like the biggest, like as big as your computer mouse, uh, the okay, shark heads and they, okay. they cut all their heads off and they, put them out to dry and the way they did and they all do them when they're back. And so it's like, they look like he's kind of like sad pumpkins. These like white sad pumpkins with these kind of like curved mouths all pointing down. It's yeah. kind of sweet. It's kind of Halloweenish. Yeah. It's kind of freaky stuff, but you, um, you know, when I go to, to Graham, when I go to a location, I usually do a lot of homework mm -hmm. and ask a lot of questions. And I knew this area to go and they didn't tell me to go look for the unhappy shark heads, but they just told me to go look. There's, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of sharks in that fishery and and so you go you want to be informed mm -hmm. when you go out yeah it, um, research must be a big part of what you do i think um i think research is really key and i, I think um a lot i see a lot of people who who, who i mean who think who, who think you have a great visual eye but you to do as a storyteller you have to really know your story before you figure, before you start telling it. Mm -hmm. And research is key. I spend about a third of my time out in the field, but two thirds is at home. And a lot of that's doing research. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you have to find it's not just like Google searching, you got to call people who know stuff who can, you, know, you want to find stuff that's not out there. So you have to talk to a lot of people mm -hmm. and find the people to talk to. Let me bounce it back to you then, George. It must be difficult, but I wonder if there's a, a particular moment, image, anecdote, experience you've had along the way that it just has a great story attached to it. My favorite pictures are usually the, the the ones that were the most that I had kind of the most skin in the game that was the most difficult to do. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, in aerial photos, uh, you know, I, there are some things I did when I was flying where I took. Uh, risks that I wouldn't want to take every day um, to get a picture and um, and you know I'm here to tell the story so I got away with it but um, th those are the, the ones that are I I, I appreciate the most because I know how much went into them but I mean even for me the 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 the, the, the story of the backstory of getting arrested in Kansas I mean that's that's what launched me in my eight-year project and, and um, th that's one of the most important pictures I took in terms of it changed the course of what I was doing for the past decade okay um i'll put a link to that picture in the show notes so people can check it out okay last round to bring us home this is a quick fire round so i've got eight quick questions if you're up for that sure okay wide angle or telephoto wide angle coffee or tea coffee uh, okay expensive lens cloth or just the corner of your shirt corner of my shirt okay okay like all the best photographers Give me that answer. Um, 
do you have like one emoji that's just your go-to emoji yeah it's usually the kid like what the, the wtf emoji like you move your hands up i don't know what to do. okay yeah I, that's my one it's got all kinds of uses so you can apply it on almost any message um what i wondered what is the most unexpectedly brilliant place that you've traveled to unexpectedly brilliant lanzarote was pretty unexpectedly brilliant for me that was a, that was um yeah i like i like you know you find um weird places often like you know remote islands have really good stuff on them mm -hmm. and so what was there was it the, the volcanic sort of landscape i think is pretty cool isn't it yeah it's the way they farm in lanzarote they, they did they have this form of pit agriculture that was really visually from the air was really beautiful look kind of like kind of kind of like a black egg crate with with grapes in the, in the hollows it was really beautiful okay yeah i was going to ask you about that one i'll put a link to that picture in the show notes what's a weird thing i could find in your camera bag toothpicks oh okay is it for picking your teeth or is there a photographic I these space teeth so i gotta pick them all the time i mean it's um <laughs> other weird stuff i mean um I, I keep my camera bag pretty clean um it's just not a lot i don't bring a lot a lot of gadgets it's um you know you always have uh you know extra batteries and extra memory card and, and that's about it okay but okay. keep it keep it clean yeah nothing that doesn't need to be in there um name a photographer that we should all know about we should all go check out somebody come to mind is really interesting i i spent a lot of time in india recently so i've been thinking a lot about mary ellen mark really Mar extraordinary photographer marilyn mary ellen mark mary ellen mark mary okay, ellen mark yep, i get you okay link in the show notes um one of the greats and when do you feel at peace with the universe when i'm sleeping <laughs> cool okay <laughs> i can relate to that for sure um i want to thank you for your time george it's so fascinating and i think like i said at the start i was a bit overwhelmed in knowing where to go on this and i think we've managed to touch on a, a few interesting things there so um thank you so much for your time and all the best thank you graham thank you thank you for listening Follow George on Instagram, and I highly recommend delving into his website. It's so interesting. You can check out his books, which are linked in the show notes as well. Remember, you can use the code VF10 to save money on your ticket for the next Viewfinders Live event. And if you like this episode, then check out my conversations with Jim Richardson and Robin Moore. Have a great week. Take care, and I'll see you soon.